is amusing and I enjoy him as a person. But it's not his fault. He's not leading a nation down the wrong path. Because politicians don't lead. They tell people what they want to hear. The truth of the matter is this is the way the population has gone. Because the majority of Americans voted for Barack Obama. There has been a massive moral change in America. And it's what's happening in the whole West. There has been this shift from a Christianese type of morality, which was generally accepted in the Western world, and it's gone to something completely different. I've lived in three countries, well, I've lived in a few more, but spent some reasonable time in America. Uh, in, in, it shows you how good my maths is. In Amer- I've lived in three countries, America, England, Australia, and South Africa. But uh, be that as it may, and I've seen firsthand what everyone acknowledges, that there is a tectonic shift in the moral landscape. Whereas before there was like a loosely Christian values, whatever that is, now morality is infinitely malleable. That is, there is no fixed laws of right and wrong. There's no such thing. In fact, the only rule by which the Western world now lives is this rule. You have the right to be happy. That's the only moral thing there is. You have the right to be happy. And you have the right to pursue your own happiness however you want to. The only thing is you pursue happiness. That's enshrined in the American Constitution. Every man has the right to pursue happiness. Now, what do Christians say? And how do Christians respond when the whole... You see, once we were cosy, once everyone sort of like agreed with Christians, not that long ago, our morality was pretty much the Western morality, give or take a few little naughty people on the left and on the right. But generally, we was okay. And suddenly, we're in a world where they think radically different to us. Morality is no longer given... My point is, morality is no longer fixed. So how do Christians respond? Because what's a Christian? A Christian, by definition, is someone who believes that there is a God and he's got the right to determine morality. So there's many things that aren't fixed. You want to grow a mow and look silly? That's cool. You want to have a bob or a perm? That's up to you. But when it comes to right and wrong, it's not up to you. Christians believe there is a God and he determines morality. He determines it. And therefore we live in a world where morality is not a fixed thing and we feel stressed. What do we do? How do Christians respond? Well, we've got two options, I guess. Two common options. How do we respond in a world where there's a moral landslide? Well, the one response is we withdraw. What we do is we just get grumpy. We get angry. And we hate the world. We hate Perth. And we hate everybody. And the first moment we get, we write a letter to the editor, blathering off how sinful people are, how wrong they are, and boy, God's going to get them. And so what do we do? We withdraw into small little churches, preferably 40, maybe 80, no more than that, And we huddle together and we wait for Jesus to come and beat up the baddies. 
and give them what they deserve. And what is church? Well, church is just a finishing school for Christians because it's about to finish. So let's all just finish well together. That's one response. Another response on the opposite extreme is to join forces with the world, to change our message so that it's more palatable to the world. And so instead of picking on the world about morality, we definitely stay off tricky. I mean, don't mention abortion. Don't talk about homosexuality. Don't talk about... Because those things are just complicated. What we do is we avoid all moral issues. And in fact, we've got a message that says, you want to be rich? God wants you to be even richer. Do you want to be wealthy? God wants you to be... You want to be healthy? No. Christianity is the way to be even healthier. And our message starts fitting into the world. So when you wake up in the morning as a Christian, which of those are you? Do you wake up angry, grumpy, cross with the world? Or do you wake up thinking, no, I just want to be rich like everyone else. Hope I get promoted before Christmas. It's not really my problem what happens to Perth. And so we come, astoundingly after that introduction, to the book of Isaiah. (laughs) And you're thinking, What's that introduction got to do with the book of Isaiah? What? What's going on here? Well, let me tell you. Isaiah, by the way, was written 740 years before Jesus. 740 years before Jesus. And you're thinking to yourself, and you should be, how can Isaiah possibly have relevance today? And I want to see how Dwayne's going to tie his intro to the book of Isaiah. How does it link? And it's actually very easy. Here's the thing. Isaiah faced the exact same situation that I've tried to describe for you. The young man Isaiah must have been in a state of panic as he watched Israel. Because what happened in Israel is that Israel was sliding into a moral chaos. And this must have been, and as you'll see from his writing, was a great stress to the prophet Isaiah. But not only that, when he reached over and grabbed his remote, thanks, uh, it is here. Um, Thanks, Igor. We were wondering where that was. It was here behind the pears. Um, As Isaiah leaned over and grabbed the remote and switched on ABC News Jerusalem, because that's where he lived, he would have seen the headlines, King Uzziah is dead. And that is a shock, because King Uzziah was a very powerful king. And he brokered a tricky piece. There was this massive empire called Assyria that was moving down on Israel. And what Uzziah had done is he had negotiated a very stable peace kind of thing. You know, It was kind of like we felt safe with George W. Bush bombing everyone. And now suddenly Uzziah is dead, and now what are we going to do? And there's instability, there's political uncertainty, and most of all, there's just a sliding in morality. In fact, Isaiah's situation's worse than ours. Do you know why? Because Israel was a theocracy. Israel was God's nation. Israel was one nation under one God. You know, like in Islam, you have, there's no separation between state and religion. It's a theocracy. That's why you have Sharia law. Well, that's what Israel was like. America, England, South Africa, Australia have never been Christian countries. Ever. You know why? 
Because Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. But Isaiah lived before Jesus when God's kingdom was in this world. It was Israel. It's no longer anymore. But it was Israel. Israel was God's country. Israel was God's people. And so when Isaiah watched the collapse of Israel, the stress must have been immense. Because here's the thing. What's happening to the kingdom of God? What's happening to the world? Where are God's promises? Isaiah saw chaos. Chaos. And in the face of that chaos, what do you expect will happen? What does God do, by the way? When there's chaos, what do you expect God to do? What does he do? You all know this. He speaks. Whenever there's chaos, out comes God's word. And God restores order out of chaos. Think of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. There was the earth was formless and void. This is Genesis 1, verse 1. Darkness over the surface of the deep. And God said, let there be light. God speaks a word into the chaos. He restores order out of chaos. And that's what happens here. Look. Verse 1, the vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. They are dumber than a donkey. They're more stupid than an ass. Because an ox knows its owner. Donkey even knows. My people don't know. God's word comes into the chaos. And he begins by saying, Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth. Now why is God calling the heavens and the earth to be witnesses? Why is God saying, Listen, heavens. Listen, earth. Why is God calling on heaven and earth? There's a number of reasons. The first reason, of course, is because that's how it all began. God spoke order into chaos and God created the heavens and the earth by speaking. And so he naturally calls heaven and earth to stand up as witnesses to the power of his word and his word which is about to create order out of chaos. But more than that, it actually has to do with the book of Isaiah. Because it begins with, hero heavens, hero earth, and in Isaiah, you don't turn there, in Isaiah chapter 66, at the very end of the book of Isaiah, we hear about the new heavens and the new earth. Because as God's word busts in, it takes the heavens and the earth, and it utterly transforms them into the new heavens and the new earth. So it's kind of like bookends in the book of Isaiah. But there's more. And the most important reason is this. Here are heavens, here are earth. Children I have reared. Here's the important point. The welfare of the entire universe, the heavens and the earth, depends on how God's people respond to God's words. Can I say that again? Because it's important The welfare 
of the heavens and the earth depends upon how God's people respond to God's words. You didn't know that the whole of Perth depends on us. (laughs) Not that I want to put any pressure on you. But that's what it is. The welfare of society, the welfare of Australia does not depend on Julia Roberts or Julia Gillard for that matter. The welfare of Australia does not depend on Tony Abbott. The world's welfare does not depend on Barack Obama. The welfare of society depends on how God's people respond to God's word. Why do you say that, Dwayne? Because that's why God calls heavens and earth to listen as he speaks his word to his people. And if you follow that through and you get to Romans chapter 8, it tells us that the whole of creation is subject to frustration, waiting for the manifestation of God's children. So God's word comes in the chaos, it creates order, it's a word that's going to restore the universe, it's a word that calls heaven and earth to witness, it's a word to God's people and it tells us four things. One, two, three and four. But one is long and three are short. But you don't believe that, but you'll see. God's word exposes sin, that's what we're going to see. God's word issues an ultimatum, God's word promises redemption. God's word guarantees a glorious future. When God's word comes through the prophet Isaiah, that's what it says. Let let me show you quickly. First of all, when God's word comes to God's people, it exposes sin. That's the first thing. And by the way, it exposes, I should have had an a and a b under the first point, because it exposes sins in two ways. First of all, that Israel was a sinful nation, And secondly, that Israel's worship was corrupt. Look at it with me, from verse 4. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, says Jesus. But I just keep thinking of those words. It's just amazing. Anyway, ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. Offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Can you hear God's cry? You are a sinful nation. And then God, in verse 5, asks the why question. How many of you have got a why question for God? Anyone got a why question for God? Because God's got a why question for you. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? Why? Why? Friends, I take it God's, God is clever. If God asks why, then you know it's a good question. Why? Why would you rebel? Why will you continue to be stubborn? against God. What's it got you? What have you got out of it? Ah, you've got everything you ever dreamed of because you resisted God. Really? Look at what God says. The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there's no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds, you leaking puff everywhere. 
Why would you continue to rebel against me? Why? They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. God looks down. He sees our rebellion against him. And he says, why would you do it? What on earth would possess you to rebel against me? Why? What's the answer? Well, there isn't an answer. <laughs> it's an impossible question to answer. There's no good reason. That why will echo throughout eternity. And of course, because they rebelled against God, there's judgment. Judgment must come. And so verse 7 and 8 is a picture of the judgment upon God's people by the powerful Assyrian Empire. Look at verse 7 and 8. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. And it's desolate, it's overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. What's going on here is a burnt earth. No, what's the word? Scorched earth policy. As Assyria came down through Israel, invading it after Uzziah died, what they would do is burn everything. Why do you do that? Because then you can't raise a guerrilla army. You can't have mercenaries and guerrillas if there's no food. And so you systematically, as you advance your armies, you burn everything. It's called a scorched earth policy. They did it in South Africa. And that's what Assyria did. And God says, look at it. It's a mess. Your whole country is desolate, burnt, smell the smoke. Because you've rebelled against me. Everything you've done has turned to dust. And verse 8 is pretty phenomenal. The daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. And, and I love to just point this out regularly. But this is amazing because archaeologists digging up in northern Iraq have found inscriptions written by, um, what was his name, Sennacherib I. And he makes this boast on the wall. He boasts that he conquered Israel and that its capital city, Jerusalem, was like left like a lodge in a cucumber field. Those exact words, which is pretty astonishing because out here in this far-flung little country of Israel, God speaks through the mouth of his prophet and up there in Assyria, northern Iraq, is this massive empire and they're saying the same thing because God rules really. And so they're under God's judgment. Israel was a sinful nature, nation. But secondly, Israel's worship was corrupt. Here's the amazing thing. The amazing thing is that while this is happening, worship is carrying on. Church is still full. Church is full. While there's this moral bankruptcy, don't think church is emptied. Church is full. Because look at what it says. Verse 9, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Sodom, Gomorrah, Hiroshima, Nagasaki. Same thing. When you hear the word Hiroshima, Nagasaki, what do you think? That's what you think as an Israelite when you hear the words Sodom and Gomorrah. And only but for God's grace, there's a few survivors. Just a few. 
But listen to what God says to them. Verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough. I'm full of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Here's the astonishing thing. People are still worshipping God, even though morally they bankrupt. Here's a cool little sentence for you. The mark of decline in a society is not the absence of worship, but it's when worship and morality are divorced. That's when you know a society is in free fall. How do you know when a society is going to hell? When they divorce religion and morality. Then you know they're in trouble. When a president can stand up and swear on the Bible to one nation under God and on his right is a preacher and on his left is another religious leader and yet the morals are bankrupt. Then you know a society is going to hell. It's not when people stop worshipping. It's when they think morality and worship are two different things. Then you know there's big, big trouble. And God calls that Sodom and Gomorrah, which means Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And look at verse 11 to 15. God says, I'm tired of your sacrifices. Look at verse 12. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? We're so silly, aren't we? Look, guys, we're full. Look at all the people. God must be happy. No. What's all this trampling of my courts? I don't want all these crowds in front of me. Look at verse 13. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of your convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of them. How do you make God tired? Here is the most powerful being in the universe. He upholds the Milky Way. Do you think his arms are getting tired? No. But suddenly God says, I'm tired. What makes God tired? People who worship him, but his lives are far from him. People who gather before him to sing his praises, but morally they're far from where they should be. It makes God bored. He gets tired. I'm weary. You're a burden to me. Verse 15, when you spread out your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I'll not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the cause of the widow. Basically, verse 16 and 17, God's saying, Stop saying you love me when you don't love your neighbor. Because that's what Israel was doing. Loving God, bringing sacrifices, but oppressing their neighbors to make a quick buck. And God says, the way you love me, as we've said at this church many times, is to love your brother and your sister. Is everyone having fun? Are we all enjoying this? It's great, eh? Studying this ancient book. Friends, 
This is the word of God to God's people. It makes me so frightened that we come here and we walk out that door going, Hooray, I know more about Isaiah than my neighbours. So glad I don't go to that church because they never taught me Isaiah like this church. It's not about that. The word of God comes and it convicts us. It makes me frightened that we preach and teach the Bible and yet our lives don't change. And we look just like the world. How many of us here are into pornography just like everybody else? But we know Isaiah better than him. I don't know actually, but God does. And at this moment you smell to him. With all your worship, you stink. How many of us are discontent? I'm not happy with my salary, I'm not happy with my car, and I want to live in Marangaroo, because that's a really cool suburb. How many of us are just like the world? All I really want is a promotion. How many of us are hiding bad marriages? How many? It hurts me to think that God's people gather and we grow bigger. We're vast. And yet God looks down and says, Oh, I couldn't be bothered. It's so boring. See, the first thing God's word does is it exposes sin. And it's telling you my experience. But it's amazing to me how you will get Christians who go to a church where the Bible isn't taught and everything's fine. Then they start coming to a Bible teaching church where the Word of God is like, whoa, and then everything erupts. And there's marriage issues. And actually, all these years I've actually been doing this. And, I'm the, and there's a son I've never spoken to for 15 years. And well, what's going on? Why do we inherit other churches' problems? Because the Word of God begins by exposing sin. And when you preach and teach the Bible, there's going to be trouble. Because the Word of God exposes sin. But there's got to be good news, Dwayne. And there is. Secondly, and these are quicker, God's Word issues an ultimatum. Look at verse 18 to 20. Tell me if you still don't think that God is great. Look at verse 18. In the light of the sin, God's word comes like a torch. You know, I had a pimple this week. Matt teased me endlessly. It hurt. But for some reason, maybe I went through puberty again or something. I've got my first pimple I've had for years. And it's not so bad until I go into the bathroom and there's this bright light on it. And what's big and it's embarrassing. Here's the thing. God's word does that. It shines. It exposes our sin. But it doesn't stop there. Look at what God says. Verse 18. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be white like wool. Come now. Folks, how good is God? Come now. Not, oh well that's it. Go now. It's not go now. It's come now, even with your pimple. Come now. Come now. See, what should God be singing at this point? What should he be singing? You and me are never ever getting back together. 
That's what God should be singing. Which obviously is uh, Matt's favourite musician, Taylor Swift, if you didn't know. I hear him singing it all the time. But here's the point. Surely that's what God should be singing. And what's he singing instead? He's not saying, hear me or never. He's saying, come. And God has got two words for sinners. I'm not talking to visitors. I'm talking to everybody. Me too. God has got two words for sinners. Be reasonable. Just be reasonable. Folks, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't care what job you do from Monday to Friday. This is the hour of reason. Christianity is coming to your senses. It's being reasonable. Look at what God says. Come, let's reason together, says the Lord. And what does he offer? He offers complete, radical transformation. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they'll be like wool. What is God saying? He's saying, I'm offering you a radical transformation. Don't you want to be different? Are you absolutely happy the way you are? Have you not looked in a mirror lately? Don't you want to change? God says, be reasonable. I will change you completely. Oh yeah, no, you don't need to change. (laughs) You stay as you are and face God and see what happens. God offers radical transformation. And the choice is yours. Come now, let's read. In fact, actually, Duane, it's not a choice. It's an ultimatum. Change or die. Because that's what he says. Look at verse 19. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be eaten by the sword. It's not a choice. Because where's the choice? It's an ultimatum. Change or die. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I.e., that's what it is. Have you got it? God's not saying, hey, listen, there's a third way. Um, You just be good. Oh, no, no, there's another way. The other way is we'll negotiate. Me and the big man upstairs, we'll sort it out. No, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Either it's radical transformation or you will die. The word of God offers an ultimatum. Thirdly, God's word promises redemption. It's a long passage, but we'll go through this one quickly. God's word promises Redemption. What you've got here is the language of adultery. It's the language of marriage. Look from verse 21. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silvers become dross. Your best wine mixed with water. What's going on here? Well, let me give it to you as quickly as I can. God married Israel. That's what Mount Sinai is. It's a wedding. God brought his bride, Israel, to himself at Mount Sinai and he married her. And she was gorgeous. She was pretty. She was faithful. She was lovely. (gasps) She had such a gorgeous figure because she was filled with righteousness. 
But unfortunately, she became a whore. She, who was full of justice, she used to be filled with righteousness, but now murderers. Your silver's dross, your best wine mixed with water. You used to be like a Cabernet Sauvignon to me, and now you watered down. Your princes are rebels and companions are thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. What's God saying? It's saying you love money. Everyone's on the take. That's all you're about. You're on the take. You don't love me. You love what I can give you. That's what you really love. And so you've become a whore. And so God's judgment must fall. Verse 24, Therefore the Lord declares, The Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. God's not talking about Assyria, eh? He's talking about his people. Ooh, imagine when God calls his people his enemy. I will get relief from my enemies. I will avenge myself on my foes. I'll turn my hand against you and will smelt away all your dross with lye and remove all your alloy. God is saying, I'm going to put you in the furnace. What are those things called? Bellows. And he's going to pump those bellows till it's white hot and you are going to pop out the other side refined with all your dross burnt out of you. It's not going to be nice. It's not going to be not sore. It's going to be very sore. But what's God talking about? Well, he's talking about this. First of all, that when God's judgment falls on God's people, it's not the end of the story. It's that God's judgment on God's people has a purifying aim. When God's judgment falls on those who are not his people, it's finishing claw. Claw. Do you know what claw means? Well, look it up in a dictionary. When God's judgment falls on his people who are not his, it's eternal. When God's judgment falls on his people, it has a purifying effect. Not for all of them. For the survivors, the remnant, the few who turn. And of course the language here is, how do you make an idol? How do you make an image? Well, you, you take uh, powder from uh, Kananora. What's, what are the mining places? You get ore and you pour it into a big furnace and out pops a pretty gold and you make an idol. And that's what God's talking about here. He's going to purify Israel so that Israel, his people, will be his image in the world. Adam and Eve were God's image. They fell. So God rescued Israel and in the prophet Jeremiah tells us that Egypt was like a furnace and he takes Israel out. Israel is his image in the world, but she falls. So we're waiting for someone who will be the perfect image, but let me not go there yet. But God promises to purify his people through judgment. By the way, that's why Christians suffer. Ninety, I read this in the Bible somewhere, 96.32% of all your suffering is because God is purifying you. In the heat of affliction, when you think you can't carry on anymore, God is purifying you. That's what it is. But let's, basically he's talking about an extreme makeover. That's what's happening to Israel. The extreme makeover. 
But then comes the biggest puzzle in the book of Isaiah. Look at verse 27. Someone help me. What's the puzzle? Notice verse 26, the result of God's purifying judgment. I will restore your judges as at first, your counselors as at the beginning. Afterwards you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Do you see that's how verse 21 started? Verse 21, the faithful city is a whore. Righteousness used to be in her. And by the time God's finished judging them, verse 26, you will be the city of righteousness, the faithful city. But here's the puzzle. Verse 27, Zion will be redeemed by justice. And those in her who repent, not everyone, those in her who repent will be redeemed by righteousness. Now, someone explain to me what's the puzzle. How does that work? See, would you have a problem if if the Bible said this, Zion will be redeemed by my mercy. Yeah, that makes sense. Zion will be redeemed by my kindness. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. I can buy that. But how can Zion be redeemed by justice? That makes no sense. Because justice demands that it be punished. How can Zion be those who repent? How can they be redeemed by righteousness? How can God be merciful and just at the same time. You can't have both. God can only do one or the other. Surely, if you've got Muslim friends, and I hope you do, ask them. How can Allah be merciful and just at the same time? Ask them. So how can he? It's a puzzle, isn't it? Verse 27. It's a great puzzle. And the answer is, if I say I'll tell you next time, will you come back? Will you? No, you won't. So I'll tell you now. I'll give you a taster. The answer is that in the book of Isaiah, this mysterious figure starts emerging. Come look with me at Isaiah 53. Look at Isaiah 53 from verse 4. How can God redeem his people by justice? How can God redeem his people By righteousness. That's the question. How can he do it? What's he going to do? Dwayne, I love you. So in your case, I'm going to bend the rules. Can God do that? How is he going to redeem me by justice? The answer is Isaiah 53 verse 4. Surely, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. With his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How's God going to do it? Well, he's going to send a substitute. And this substitute is going to take upon himself the punishment that we deserve so that God's people can be redeemed by justice. So that when you stand before God and he says, come into my glory, he hasn't bent a single rule. He can save you by justice, by righteousness. 
Because this figure, I'm not going to tell you what his name is, this figure took our punishment. And the sign of being redeemed by God is to blush. How do you know if you've been redeemed? You blush. You blush because of your past. You're ashamed of your sin. And that's what verse 28 to 31 is all about. But let's move on and go to our last point. God's word guarantees a glorious future. Here's the wonderful news about Christianity. The world we all long for. Why did you vote for Barack Obama? None of you did, but why would you? The only reason you'll vote for anyone is because you hope that they'll fix it. You hope that they will bring in a better world. My best example of this is Bruce Springsteen. What happens with old Barack Obama is that when he ran for his first four years election, what was his whole ticket? What was his campaign manifesto? Change. Do you remember? He was going to lead America out of the Republican dark ages. He was going to lead America on a new exodus into the free land where we're all happy and smiley forever. It was a dream. And Bruce Springsteen wrote a song about it. And so every time Obama in the first four year campaign went around campaigning, next to him was the old fellow Bruce Springsteen with his guitar. And he sang a song. And if I can remember the lyrics, because this is another one Matt sings all the time, it goes something like this. I'm working on a dream. Sometimes it feels that trouble's here to stay. I'm working on a dream. I know that it'll be mine one day. And as he sings this heartwarming song, we all know how emotional Americans are, and as he sings this heartwarming song about a dream, we're working on a dream. And next to him, next to him stands the Messiah, Barack Obama. But the fact is, it is a world we want. They write to long for a better world. Look at verse 4. Wouldn't you like to live in a world like this? Look at verse 4. He will judge between the nations. He'll decide disputes before many pe- for many peoples. They'll beat... I mean, are you all there? Isaiah. Chapter 2. Verse 4. Hmm? This is the world we want. He will judge between the nations and he will decide disputes for many peoples. They'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Isn't that the world you want to live in? Isn't it? Unless, of course, you're a sword manufacturer. But if you're not, isn't that a great world? Isn't that the world we long for? And yet, God's word comes and promises just such a world. When? How will this come about? How will we get to verse 4? Well, the answer is we go verse 2 and 3. This is how we get to verse 4. And it shall come to pass in the latter days. When? When's the latter days? 1998. No, 94. No, 2072. When are the last days? The Jehovah Witnesses say it's 1914. Folks, the New Testament is so clear. The last days are when Jesus was on earth. That's the last days. 
1 Corinthians chapter 10 says, The fulfillment of the ages has come upon us. Hebrews chapter 1 says, In these last days God has spoken to us by His Son. It shall come to pass in the last days is a reference to Jesus and His time on earth. And watch what will happen. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations will flow to it and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He may teach us His ways that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Did you see the language? Mountains, mountains, high hills. What's it talking about? Well, in this world, the way you worship God is you go to a high place. Because then you're closer to God. And so all the high places in the Old Testament were places of worship. But in the last days, the house of the Lord will be the highest mountain. It will be lifted above all the hills. What's it talking about? What's going to happen is the whole of Jerusalem is going to go... Is that, is, that, is that what it's talking about? Don't be silly. What it's talking about is the king who goes up onto a mountain. He sits down and he teaches the law of God. His name is Jesus. And the sermon is called the Sermon on the Mount. More than that, more than that. He comes down the mountain and he dies. And he rises again and then he goes to another mountain again. He goes up the mountain and he sits down and you know what he says? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go to all the nations. Make disciples of everyone. Teaching them to observe everything I've told you beginning in Jerusalem. Look at, verse, at the end of verse 3. Out of Zion will go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And the result of Christ's rule is ultimately the kingdom of God will be established. So in the light of uncertainty and moral chaos, God's word breaks through to Isaiah and it does four things. Here they are, let me wrap up. God's word exposes sin. God's word issues an ultimatum. God's word promises redemption. God's word guarantees a glorious future. Now let me ask you a question. What is that other than the gospel of Jesus Christ? What is that other than the gospel of Jesus Christ? The gospel of Jesus Christ begins by exposing sin. The good news of Jesus starts by saying you're not acceptable to God as you are. I'm sorry, you're going to have to have a ma massive heart transplant. The gospel of Jesus Christ exposes sin. It shows us that we fall short of the glory of God. But then the gospel of Jesus Christ issues an ultimatum. It says, repent. Turn while there's still time. Turn to Jesus. Turn from your old ways so that you may live and not die. The gospel of Jesus Christ promises redemption. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that God has redeemed his people by justice. Because Jesus on the cross took the punishment we deserve. The gospel of Jesus Christ promises free, fair and just redemption. And the gospel of Jesus Christ promises a glorious future. 
Because it says the kingdom of God has come in Jesus and now it's all over the world where the law of the king is being preached and proclaimed. And one day, not yet, it will come in its final glory. So what must we do? Look at verse 5. O house of Jacob, O down to earth, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Come on. Let's walk in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Flee to the gospel. Embrace the gospel. Love the gospel. Spread the gospel. It's the only hope for Perth. It's the only hope for Australia. The church, down-to-earth church, must remain gospel-centered. We can't afford to be distracted by anything else. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. That's an introduction to the book of Isaiah. Is there time for questions and answers, Matt? You're the boss. No. Look at the time. No. Yes? Make a decision. Cool. We're going to have one or two quick questions. Go ahead, Paul.